Data School Psych Podcast. We are happy to have you tonight. I know a lot of us have, uh, you know, the day off tomorrow. So I'm um, hoping that everybody is kind of relaxing and, and enjoying some time off. Uh, but I am Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in Maryland. I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, who's going to tell us how you can participate tonight. Rebecca. Um, hello, everybody. As Rachel said, I am Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist in the state of Florida. Um, and a clinical psychology trainee, and I'm very excited about our guest today. Um, but before we get to introducing our guest, uh, I'd like to tell you all how to participate. If you are tuned in live to our YouTube broadcast, um, please just sign into your YouTube account and you can comment right alongside the video. Even if you're watching the video recording later and not live, your comments and questions will line up uh, in time with the video and we can always go back and uh, continue the conversation. We look for comments and questions and look for discussions because it's so helpful to us all. We have our motto that none of us is as skilled as all of us. So we really believe in that. Also, feel free to participate on our uh, social media pages. We have our dedicated School Psych podcast page, um, uh, School Psych podcast on Facebook. We also have School Psyched, your school psychologist, which is a broader um, community of mental health professionals and educators and uh, lots of people who care about helping kids thrive. So feel free to message under the post for tonight's broadcast to comment right on the page or more privately, um, you can message our inbox. Also on Twitter, we are at Podcast Psyched on Twitter and try please to use the hashtag Psyched Podcast. I'll be looking for notifications in all those places and we'll be sharing the comments that come through live tonight and we look forward to your contributions. And now I'm going to hand it over to Eric who's going to introduce himself and our wonderful guest. Thank you, Rebecca. Hi, everyone. My name is Eric, and I am a school psychologist in the state of Connecticut. And um, as we start out, first, I want to thank everyone who has reached out to us um, this week uh, regarding the passing of our state association president, Sarah, and um, just everyone's outpouring of love and support and, and just ask that you continue to uh, think about and, and say prayers for her family. Um, and if you have checked our website or our state association website, you can take a look at how to contribute um, and uh, donate and support her family as well. So I uh, just want to thank everyone for that. The love has been felt um, dearly. So um, this evening, we're going to talk about um, some things or Dr. Poland is going to talk about some things and we're going to um, hopefully listen and contribute and participate in the conversation. But we are really excited um, and appreciative of uh, Dr. Scott Poland's time. He's a professor at the College of Psychology and the director of the Suicide and Violence Prevention Office at Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He's an internationally recognized expert on youth suicide, school crisis, and prevention, and has authored or co-authored six books on these subjects. His most recent book, uh, published in 2021, is Lessons Learned from School Shootings, Perspectives from the United States. He previously directed psychological services for a large Texas school system for 24 years and is past president of the National Association of School Psychologists. Um, so we're kind of excited. You know, we are a little bit uh, giddy about NASP and uh, our, our NASP folks and our NASP leadership. So um, 
And so welcome, Dr. Poland. We are excited to have you here. And we know that um, violence and uh, suicide and so many topics are crucial to us as school psychologists and educators. Thank you very much, Eric. And thank everybody for tuning in. And Rebecca, if you'd put up the first slide, it will have my email on it. And actually pride myself in answering every email. And on Friday, I talked to a school psychologist in Illinois about an issue they were dealing with with regards to a crisis. And as we move on to the next slide, I guess I want to explain why did I get so interested in legal issues? Bottom line, I've been involved now in over 25 legal cases where schools got sued. What am I really looking for? I'm looking for prevention lessons. What might save the next life, whether it be from an act of violence towards others or an act of violence towards self. But I want to say something and make it really clear. 99% of the time, I believe schools get it right in terms of prevention, crisis response, notifying parents, for example, assessing threats of violence towards others. But Schools have made some mistakes. And I think the literature in school psychology is really lacking in this area. I mentioned earlier to Rachel that while I was at the NAS conference last week, I pulled up like the ethics book. And I quickly went through the index and was looking for anything that had to do with crisis intervention. And really, it simply wasn't there. Every one of the cases that I'm going to talk about today. I was personally involved. So let's look to at the next slide, a case from Michigan. Now, I think we all know, at least anybody tuning in from Florida, that we're really in a time when there's a lot of emphasis on parental permission. And that was one of the central issues in this case. So what's it all about? It was a small town in Michigan. 18 kids are on the school bus, they are on their way home. The bus driver pulls up to little little girl off the bus. Everybody looks to the right. Sadly, there is the girl's older sister hanging dead on the porch in what turned out to be yet another adolescent suicide. The bus driver got the little girl back on the bus, turned the bus around, went back to the bus barn where the school psychologist was summoned, the school counselor, and the principal. Now, they can't hold that bus very long because parents, they're wondering what happens when their kid doesn't get off the bus at the normal time. But they do start making phone calls. And one of the families they called, it looks at the deposition from the mom she clearly understood the importance of telling her daughter the truth about seeing a dead body on the way home. But her husband definitely disagreed. So when a six-year-old, and I'm going to call her Kay, when Kay got off the bus, dad said, no, honey, you did not see a dead body. You saw a Halloween decoration. Halloween is coming up in a few days. And please no, Kay was absolutely no relation to the suicide victim, but it was a small town, the kind of place where everybody knows everyone. So the next morning, pretty traditional intervention. 
before school, staff meeting, training, going over the plan for the day, something I've been writing about for over 40 years. Help the staff first. Help them understand the typical reactions children have to a tragedy. The first grade teacher of K is hurrying to the classroom because the bell's about to ring. K's mom is in the hallway, says something to the teacher like, keep an eye on K. Oh, and I hope you don't bring up that she saw a suicide victim on the way home. Well, along come the principal, counselor, school psychologist. They gather 18 kids and they do a pretty typical intervention. Younger kids, we're talking cards, markers, drawing. Older kids, we're talking maybe a little more verbalization. They encourage the older kids to look out for the younger kids. Nobody in that group of 18 stood out as being unusually upset as opposed to being exposed to seeing a dead body. Now, there was monitoring and over the next couple of days, weeks, really much is noted. But after about a week or two, every time Kay's mom is coming to have lunch with her, Kay starts to get pretty noticeably upset before her mom arrives. And then after about six weeks, Kay is pulled out of school, put in a private school. Clinical psychologist writes a report saying Kay has PTSD because of the intervention led by the school counselor and the school psychologist. Now, you're immediately questioning, well, they put kids together, grades first grade through sixth grade. I know typically we work with them differently, but I argued because I was on the side of the school district, it made sense to put them together. They helped the older kids Stop focusing on gory details. Look out for younger kids. And those kids are going to ride the bus together to and from school every single day. So I argued that it was an intact group. I'll never forget when I was deposed, though, because the attorney for the plaintiff argued, you didn't even tell your own eight-year-old about the suicide of his grandfather until he was a little older. How could you possibly think this girl need to be told the truth? Well, you didn't ask me when I told my youngest daughter about the suicide of the grandfather she never met. I'm a really big believer in telling kids the truth. And basically, what's at the foundation of the relationship between kids and parents? I believe it's one of trust. So Kay was like the only kid in school whose parents were trying to say, oh, no, you didn't see a dead body. And then I asked for records like, Let's look at how Kay's doing a couple years later in the third grade. How did her first grade teacher describe her? Smart, popular, good student, got along with everyone. How did they describe her in third grade two years later in the private school? Exactly the same. So one of the issues is parent permission. But then what's NAST actually say about that? In an emergency situation, we should get involved and we should help out. As soon as possible, call parents and let them know that, yes, you met their child today and you helped because the child was exposed to a loss or exposed to a tragedy. 
So you're wondering about the outcome of the case. Well, the district prevailed in the first court. The parents appealed and the district prevailed in the Michigan Court of Appeals. But I would be remiss today not to say, given the movement that we have in at least some of our very conservative states, this is something we need to be talking about with our supervisors, for example. And I hope the decision is always going to be for a school psychologist to get in there, get involved, try to help everybody. You know what my greatest fear is? We have reason to believe a kid is suicidal and a principal goes, oh no, you can't even talk to him. Not until you get the parent's permission first. But what if the parents say, no, you can't talk to my child? This is an issue that we are going to have to monitor. And when I was involved in this case, I actually thought pretty simply, if Onsted Schools loses this case, you could throw out my entire career, every NAS best practice chapter I've ever written. If we can't get involved and help kids when they're exposed to a tragedy. And today in particular, I have picked four or five different type cases. And I'm gonna take a moment and see if Eric, Rebecca, or Rachel has something you wanna say. I'm pretty sure none of you have ever heard of this particular case, nor am I aware of another case like it, no matter how much I've tried to monitor the literature. But any quick comment before I move to the next case? Yeah, I have a question. Um, I'd like to know, like, um, kind of two questions, maybe. One, um, you know, the, the school psychologists involved in the case, are they brought into the trial and, 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 and talking to the court? How, how does that work? You know, as a school psychologist, I have to wonder um, and what, what responsibility the school psych has versus the district. And then my other question was, because um, you stated that you argued because you were on the side of the district that this was, so when you say that you argued a certain way because you're on the side of the district, is that, are you meaning that you, because you agreed with them or, are, or were you hired by the district to argue a particular point? How does that work? Well, great points, Rachel, but I mean, I would never take a case and state something that I did not believe in. So bottom line, because those 18 kids ride a bus to and from school every single day, if this happened again, I'd say work with all the kids together because they're gonna be together for 45 minutes this morning, 45 minutes this afternoon. Okay? And then the issue of liability is gonna come up through all of these. But one of your comments made me think of something that was really important. We need to have documentation that we have training in crisis intervention when we lead an activity like this. Both the counselor and the school psychologist had 50 hours of crisis training from the Trauma and Loss Center in Detroit. And Dr. Steele, who provided their training, basically in his testimony said, they did exactly what they were trained to do. And yes, they were called into question through deposition, but the good news was they followed their training. In fact, I encourage all school psychologists to seek out training in this particular area. Get a, a credential 
we're very fortunate. We have NAS Prepare, for example, but every school psychologist I've ever met faces crisis situations. And there's nobody else in the school they're going to look for. They're going to think school psychologists got to know more about this than anybody else. So, and I also believe strongly that we broaden our support when we get involved, we help the administration in these difficult times. So I want to move on to the next case, if I could. And by the way, the next one will tell you where I used to work. Cypress Fairbanks, district over 100,000 students in Northwest Houston. So I was on their side. I was on their side because I believed they did the right things here. We had no warning signs that Brandy was suicidal. After a careful investigation, Brandy was believed to be selling drugs on the campus. So Mr. Fowler, the assistant principal, called her mom, brought her mom to campus, searched. They couldn't find any of the drugs on her or in her locker at that moment, but they had lots of statements from other students who had bought drugs from her. And Mr. Fowler said, you're suspended, Brandy. I'm recommending expulsion. Mom and her daughter left. Tragically, mom left her at home. Mom went back to work. Brandy found the family handgun, died by suicide, left a note behind saying she was sorry. Yes, she was selling the drugs. So what was our defense? We didn't have any of the typical warning signs of suicide. You all know what those are. We thought we were only dealing with a girl who made a poor choice about selling drugs on campus. We prevailed in the first court. We prevailed in the appeal court. Although the attorney for the plaintiff argued something. Given the scope of youth suicide, every kid being severely disciplined should be questioned about suicidal thoughts and actions. What have I come to think? The plaintiff's attorney was absolutely correct. Think about everything Brandy is losing here. Now, I said Mr. Fowler was a nice guy. I worked on trying to support him for weeks and months. So what would he tell you? If he was on our podcast today, he would say he wishes he'd spend a little more time with Brandy. He let her know, we do care about you, Brandy. You can't go to Blyle Middle School right now. Mom, this has got to be a very difficult day in your daughter's life. Can you please stay home with her the rest of the day? And Brandy, before you even walk out of the building, I want you to talk to the school counselor. I think any one of those three things probably would have saved her life. And Brandy would be like 45 years old today. Unfortunately, she's not here. And I could give you other examples where kids left the expulsion conference, went home, and followed through on earlier thought-out suicidal plans. I imagine Brandy had been thinking about suicide for a while. But being expelled from school precipitated and caused her to take action. So if you can somehow get the attention of administrators when they are recommending kids for expulsion. And in Fairfax County, Virginia, a hearing officer, when I did a presentation there, said, Scott, I'm haunted by something. 
I upheld the kid's expulsion. He went home that night and he died by suicide. Now, if I conduct one of those hearings, I have a counselor standing by. So there are lessons from this case too. Anybody have a quick comment? I do. I have a question um, that comes to mind. I think it makes so much sense in the case of expulsion to have a student um, meet with the counselor or the school psychologist. Um, but it makes me think that, you know, there are a lot of circumstances in which kids are, are at higher risk um, for self-harm or, or harming someone else. And those can include, you know, um, poor, poor performance in school or even maybe detention, let alone suspension or expulsion. And I wonder about what you recommend in terms of just regular risk assessment for most kids. Okay, well, great question. We, we could spend hours on that. I'm a very big fan of Dewey Cornell and the CSTAG for assessing threats of violence towards others. I'm a very big fan of the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale and assessing suicidal threats. It's standardized. A theme through a bunch of my cases is the school psychologist or the school counselor didn't use anything standardized. They didn't keep good records. They didn't share information with the principal. They didn't really get the parents' attention. This is serious. They didn't have a written safety plan. All of those things are really what puts us in jeopardy for liability. And you got to know the plan and you've got to follow it forwards and backwards. And bottom line, seek out some collaboration and supervision as you move through these cases. Now, the good news the vast majority of suicidal kids have no thoughts of harming anyone but themselves. So we shouldn't be afraid to sit down with the kid who's suicidal. And several cases are going to go into the importance of parent notification in just a few moments. In fact, that's the very next case. I think you'll find it fascinating, Rebecca, based on the questions you ask. Hope Witzel. Hillsborough County, Florida, Tampa. Early sexting case. Hope finally gave in. She was an eighth grader. She sent a picture of herself topless to an eighth grade boy. Most eighth grade boys are going to share that picture with everybody, and he did. Principal is aware he is disciplined. Hope was also disciplined, but she has to keep going to the same eighth grade. So she's taunted, she's harassed pretty much on a daily basis. It's a couple months later. It is a Friday afternoon. Hope has a fresh cut on her arm. Teacher sees it, calls for a social worker. Social worker comes in, meets with Hope, and has her sign a no-suicide contract. You need to know those have been sorely criticized. Why? They're all about what not to do. A safety plan, which should be written, is all about internally and externally, let's write everything down about what you could do to keep yourself safe. And of course, it's going to stress, get adult help, call 988, crisis helpline, crisis text line. So 
Hope signed the no suicide contract and Hope was sent home. Social worker did not seek any collaboration or supervision, nor did she call Hope's parents. Over the weekend, I'm really sorry to tell you that Hope died by suicide. After her funeral, mom is cleaning out her backpack. There is a no suicide contract on Hillsborough County stationery signed by Hope and the social worker. Mom is furious. Hillsborough called and asked for my advice. My advice was settle out of court. You made a grievous error. Your challenge is to make sure that no school mental health professionals make such an error. They did not take my advice. Let's look at the next slide, Rebecca. Amazingly, they actually prevailed in court. The plaintiff's attorney failed to even demand, where's the documentation you trained the social worker on the importance of parent notification? The judge encouraged the Witzels to refile their case. They chose not to. Now I've been to Hillsborough a couple times since this case was decided, most recently a year ago. But you know, when I bring a case up like this, even in the district where it actually occurred, everybody looks at me like, what are you talking about? School districts bury these cases. There is a lesson from this case. It is, of course, written safety plans, notification to parents, seeking out supervision and collaboration. And if you were to ask me the most likely circumstance, where a school could be found liable after a student suicide, you had reason to suspect the student was suicidal, but you did not notify parents or call protective services or call for a mobile crisis team. And I'll quote my youngest daughter. She's an attorney. Jill said, Dad, suing the school is like suing a government. You know, the plaintiff is almost never going to win one of these cases. The district is going to drag this out, make it take forever. It'll cost so much money and the parents will give up. That is actually a very effective strategy. And these cases, only the people listening are going to learn about these because very few of these have ever had a verdict in civil court against a school district. And I want to stress again, I said in the beginning, 99% of the time schools do it right, but they make mistakes. And I believe we should learn from those mistakes. In my opinion, there's only one exception to notifying the parents of a student suspected of being suicidal, no matter how low you might think that risk is. You had reason to talk to them about suicidal behavior. The only exception is you believe they're abused. Now you're notifying protective services. Document every step. And please know, parents are going to look at us to try to find any reason not to take this seriously. Our job is to get them to take it seriously. Remove lethal means. 
seek out community services and hopefully allow a community-based provider to share information with us as school psychologists. Too much important information about suicidal behavior is actually hidden from school mental health professionals. Now, does anybody have a, a quick question or comment? Uh, I do. So I, I work at the elementary level and a lot of um, the cases that come to my office are kids that uh, out of frustration, they don't do well on the test. Oh, I wish I was dead. And so it's kind of this transient thing. They, I have a conversation with them about using language like that that's not wrong to say when that's how you're feeling like I want to know about that you're not in trouble and I first notify the parent I can't say that I write a safety plan in all instances at what point is a safety plan always best practice is there a particular you know risk level that you know, a safety plan should be implemented okay well great questions and you know Rachel I hear from all over the country from fourth and fifth grade counselors for example more and more elementary age kids are threatening suicide. Data just came out indicating that younger children and more children of color are attempting and dying by suicide. I imagine that what you're describing is repeat behavior and it can be frustrating because we wish kids could say, I'm just angry about X as opposed to saying, I'm gonna kill myself. But I do believe you need a safety plan in place and maybe a quick review of it because it's happened yet again, only four days later, the kid's still talking suicide. Let's get out your safety plan again and at least a quick notification to parents. So I know this takes a lot of time. And I think as school psychologists, we have to make sure the administration is really aware of how much time we are spending trying to prevent tragedies. And I've responded to several suicides of kids as young as age nine. So I know this can happen. Let's move on to the very next case. And if you were to ask me in all the cases I've ever been involved in, which one frustrated me the most? It'd probably be this one. Louisville is a very prosperous suburb of Dallas. I was on the side of the plaintiff and Montana was only nine years old. You know, he had multiple disabilities. He was a kid that was identified with learning disabilities, speech, ADHD, like almost as soon as he got to public school. But when he was seven in second grade, his parents went to the special ed committee and said, you know, it really has us worried. Montana keeps talking about wanting to kill himself. So they did another evaluation, or at least they say they did. They qualified him as emotionally disturbed. But you know, if you go to the next slide, Rebecca, they could never produce that evaluation. You know, they are supposed to help guide our special education services. All they had was BAS data, self-report. He said he was suicidal. His parents' report said he was suicidal. You know, unfortunately, the counseling services he received never addressed depression and suicide. I've looked at too many IEPs for counseling. They're all pre-printed. They all look the same. Montana's IEP should have focused on depression and suicide. 
That should have been the treatment. Now you've already glanced at his fourth grade year. Basically, just slightly over one semester, he sees the assistant principal and is disciplined 30 times. Does that sound excessive to you? By the way, she viewed every single one as an interpersonal conflict. Let's go to the next slide, Rebecca. She didn't want to even consider bullying could be going on because if it's bullying, she has to investigate right away. She's got to write it up, follow the policy, and actually leave Stewart Creek Elementary School. And there was no indication she ever reviewed his BIP, ever reviewed his IEP. Now in that same, a little over four months, he saw the nurse 16 times. Many were somatic complaints, but seven times he was actually physically injured at school. You know what the nurse said in her deposition? If anybody had ever told me Montana Lance was suicidal, obviously I'd never let him go into the clinic bathroom when I knew I couldn't unlock the door. When Montana and other kids locked themselves in the bathroom, she couldn't get the door open. She had to call for the custodian who came with tools. Now, just before the December holidays, Montana was chased in the cafeteria before school, knocked down. Four kids were chasing him. He made a mistake. He pulled a pocket knife out. You know, he never opened it, but he got it out of his pocket. Now he's in big trouble. You know, there's something that everybody here knows about. It's called Manifest Determination Review. They totally skipped that part. They took steps to place him at the alternative school. I believe he was the youngest kid ever to go there. Let's look at the next slide because his parents appealed. Looked like the principal turned down the appeal in 10 minutes. Parents appealed to the assistant superintendent. He turned it down. So on day eight of his time at the alternative school, Montana was suicidal. They called for a counselor. Let me tell you what his deposition said. I mean, I only worked at high schoolers before. I sure never tried to do a suicide assessment with a nine-year-old. But he did at least call Montana's parents. But he failed to fill out the required district paperwork. And maybe most importantly, he failed to tell Stewart Creek Elementary this is Thursday. Montana will be back on Monday. Well, his second day back at his home school, which is on the next slide, Montana's in trouble. He's placed an in-school suspension yet again by the assistant principal. Montana says, I got to go to the bathroom. There's only one bathroom he's allowed to go to. That's in the nurse's clinic. Montana locked the door. The nurse doesn't check on him for 10 minutes. It's too late. Montana hung himself. The day after he died, the locksmith was sent out, put in a new lock on the door, and gave the nurse the key. Unfortunately, that was like two years too late. The nurse had known for two years she couldn't unlock that door. All right, let's go to the next slide. 
what are the issues here? What did I argue on the side of the plaintiff? Your kids got to go to school, right? Unless you homeschool them. We got to accept some responsibility for a special relationship, especially if a kid's only nine and has four identified special education disabilities. Any one of the three of you want to predict the outcome in the Texas Eastern District Court? I think there are so many points of failure here that I can't imagine the district one. All right, let's go to the next slide. They put a lot of emphasis on Co on Doe versus Covington, Mississippi. By the way, that was a nine-year-old girl who must have had a communication disorder. She was checked out of school six times by an unauthorized adult and sexually assaulted every time. They didn't find that school district liable, nor did they find Louisville liable because Montana wasn't incarcerated. He wasn't involuntarily committed. He wasn't in foster care. Oh, and the court even commented about the assistant principal. They said she clearly did it wrong. She didn't see a single incident all year for the entire school as possibly being bullying. But because she did it wrong for everybody, she didn't discriminate against Montana lands. This case was appealed all the way to the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court in New Orleans. They also found for the school district. This truly is an uphill battle. And please don't misunderstand it's not that I wanted Louisville ISD to pay out $20 million. In fact, do you know his parents, you know what they wanted initially? They just wanted the district to make changes, to improve their procedures, you know, increase their bullying prevention, recognize issues about bullying and suicide. That's all they wanted. But the district refused to do any of those things. And you know, since the district prevailed in the case, that meant none of the 1,300 plus school districts in Texas paid any attention at all. And by the way, if you're wondering, and you said something earlier that was very kind to me about being very well known in school psychology, but I'm not particularly well liked in Louisville ISD, but I don't care. They made some mistakes, okay? We need to get to a couple more cases. Um, so I'd like to go to the very next slide because I think this, this one's gonna surprise you as well. There's a kid in Colorado that should have been a hero. She was communicating to Jay Gallagher who lived in Virginia multiple times every day. I read every text message. I read every email. By the way, she gave him incredible advice about self-care, give your parents a chance. I know they love you. Go talk to your school counselor, get more sleep, exercise, you name it, about self-care. She was giving him incredible advice. But then his comments to her became increasingly suicidal. Now she knows she's got to do something, right? 
Do you know how many Gallagher's there are in the Washington, D.C. area? She didn't even know Jay's parents' name. So now she goes back through every picture he ever posted. Because Loudoun County has like, I don't know, 12 high schools. She finally finds one where he's in front of a mascot. Now she knows. She contacts the high school counselor, Mr. Bader. He says, tell me more. She tells him a lot more. Mr. Bader called Jay into his office. Jay categorically denied being suicidal. Lots of suicidal kids deny it. At some level, they know if they admit it, their afternoon just changed. They're not walking out of your office anytime soon. So hopefully everybody listening remembers that. Many suicidal kids do deny it. Now, good news, lots of kids are willing to talk with us about it, and we can essentially be offering a lifeline. So Mr. Bader relied on two things. Jay said, no, Jay just turned 18 a couple of weeks ago. Therefore, I don't have to tell his parents. The Loudoun County procedures are actually among the best I've ever seen. What'd they say? Tell the parents. No exception for age, and tell the building principal. So, anybody have a thought on this case? And you must be wondering, why is Mr. Bader being sued personally? That's because in the state of Virginia, you're not allowed to sue a school district. That's essentially saying a school district could never make a mistake. I really didn't want to take the case until the attorney who hired me gave me some information that indicated Mr. Bader had failed to tell parents before, and the outcome had been tragic. So let's look at the next slide, Rebecca. Virginia actually has a law that needs to be updated. That's 21 years ago, saying unless it's eminent, you don't have to tell parents. I believe we have a responsibility to tell parents, give them a chance to remove lethal means from their home, increase supervision, a chance to secure community-based services. This case was settled out of court. So what's the lesson from this case? What am I really saying? I don't care how old a kid is, they're still in high school. My recommendation is tell their parents. Jay Gallagher was living with his parents. They did not get a chance to do any of those things that I just mentioned. The next couple are going to move us into the area of threats of violence towards others. And I do want to allow some time at the end for general questions for everybody. I sometimes hear from school psychologists that I'm like talking about things that nobody has ever talked to them about before. So I expect there are going to be a lot of comments. So where's the St. Vrain School District? Oh, it's about 40 miles straight north of Denver. I was on the side of the plaintiff in this case. And please know 
this is a case where there was not a tragedy, okay? There was an alleged threat of violence towards others. So let me set the stage for you. It involved two boys that were really good friends. It looks like B was a kid constantly in trouble. And one day he's getting out of after-school detention. He starts chatting with a couple of cheerleaders that uh, they're practicing after school. I might hypothesize they would rarely give B the time of day. But he's like, oh, yeah, I was in trouble again today. Good thing I didn't have my knife with me. Boy, I hadn't been in real trouble. I usually carry that knife. And they say something to him like, well, you wouldn't hurt anybody here, would you? He goes, no. No, I wouldn't. But I think my friend S, he is planning something big. Well, the cheerleaders tell the sponsor exactly what they should do. Sponsor goes to the principal, exactly what sponsor should do. Sponsor goes to the principal, principal goes to the police. Everybody is responding exactly the way they should. The police interview both boys separately. Next slide, please. B basically pretty quickly recants his story, said I was only joking. Meanwhile, S is saying to the police, I have no plans to harm anybody at school. I've been here for like 11 school years. I don't know why B threw me under the bus. Why would he say such a thing? Well, the police take this very seriously. They go to S's home. And I'm not joking when I say S literally went home to a mom there after school, milk and cookies, and he helped with his younger sister's homework, and he was one badge away from being an Eagle Scout. I don't know everything about school shooters, but I have responded on site to 17 school shootings, and I've tried to read everything I can get my hands on. I don't think you're going to find one that was one badge away from becoming an Eagle Scout. But the police come, they search his home. There are two weapons, but they are World War II replica rifles. They do not fire. S and his dad are in a historical society fascinated with World War II, okay? And they go through over 200 photos. And basically, they find a few things. He does like to doodle a little bit about violence. He has checked out some books about murder. But I mean, we've got to be pretty direct here and realize our country is fascinated with murder. It's in our movies, our television programs. It's in best-selling books. So we shouldn't be too surprised that a kid reads some books that have to do with murder, okay? All right, let's go on to the next slide, please. And he was in a rather unusual class. And what was, it was a, a regular education class, but the assignment was do a project on somebody dominant in history. He picked Adolf Hitler because the dad was already fascinated with World War II. He presented his project 
the counselor didn't run to the school psychologist with like, oh my God. In fact, he got an A on the project. So now, let's go to the next slide, please. The police concluded their investigation, said the threat was unfounded. It wasn't enough for the principal. He convened his own threat assessment team, leading, leaving out that important mental health representative. And by the way, what are two teachers going to say when a principal wants to expel a kid? I don't think they're going to say much at all. And S sat down with the principal, even put it in writing. Something like, high school is tedious. I'll grant you that but I have no plans to harm anybody. He had no hit list. He didn't post anything. He didn't write anything down. And the one person that commented that he said something about school violence recanted his story. So what's a substantial threat? A grudge? Some motivation? There was no grudge or motivation that S had. He had no working weapon. He had no rehearsal. He had no plan. If anything, this is a transient threat. But the school board, if we move on to the next slide, they upheld his expulsion. The parents moved quickly. They got maybe the best forensic psychological evaluation done I've ever seen. By the way, could any of us put in writing this kid is never going to hurt himself or another person. We don't have that ability. In fact, I actually prefer the term threat reduction. What are all the things that need to be put in place for an intervention? That's what our report should all be about. We can't absolutely guarantee safety. Nobody has that ability. But the school district refused to even look at the evaluation. They could have saved his entire senior year. Instead, he had to go to a private school where he was not a problem, graduated, and went on with his life. So let's look at the outcome on the very next slide. And there are some questions for you. I think the administrator and the school district should have paid attention to the very well done forensic psychological evaluation. They could have kept him out of school for a period of time. If they didn't like the private evaluation, they could have done their own evaluation. But I think that S got a really bad deal here. I hear administrators say something like this. Abundance of caution, keeping everybody safe. I understand that, but I think S had rights too. So let's look at the next slide. The court concluded in this day and age, they had reason to fear him. So they were justified in expelling him. That's kind of scary to expel a kid for something you can't even document that they said, wrote down, made a plan to do. And the expert on the other side for the district said, 
who is Dr. Poland to even dare question an administrator's judgment? So you can probably tell I have some frustrations about this case. And I have one more that is actually landmark, and I want to get to it. So, Rebecca, if you would turn to that one. I'm going to try to make it really quick. Far as I know, this is the first legal case in civil court ever where a school district was held liable. Of course, I'm sitting right here in Broward County. They settled out of court with the families of Parkland victims for $27 million. They did that based on this case. So what really is it all about? Sadly, Bo Cleveland was shot with a shotgun by Brian Oliver. Bo survived, but he has lifelong medical complications. He's had over 20 surgeries. It appeared that Bo was Brian's biggest tormentor. But there were so many warning signs. If you're wondering about Brian, he got 27 years in prison. But Brian had repeatedly, over a two-year period, gone to the assistant principal, complaining about the bullying he received. It was so aggressive in physical education class that he refused to even dress out. School staff went to the AP. Kids went to the AP. Parents went to the AP about Brian's threats of violence. And perhaps the biggest threat is not, I think it's on the next slide. Brian is on a, full, a field trip and teachers overhear him telling kids, here's my plan. Next school assembly, I'm going to start a fire in the auditorium. And then when everybody comes running out, I'm going to shoot them. Well, obviously, kids say, would you really do that? Would you shoot me? Oh, yes, I would. Kids and teachers went to the assistant principal. She got the school psychologist involved. He did a one-time threat assessment. You know what his deposition said? I didn't need the details. Brian convinced me this was just a dream. You know, everything about threat assessment is in the details. Brian was a special education student. The intervention should have been planned by a special ed committee. Instead, the school psychologist said, oh, I'll check with him a couple of times. That might have only been asking him in the hallway a couple of times, how is it going? So let's move on. I want to get to a quick conclusion of the case. California has an interesting law, though. You threaten violence at school. Every teacher is supposed to be told for the next three years. The assistant principal did not tell any teachers. And Brian continued to make threats. Brian told one teacher something drastic is going to happen. She, of course, told the assistant principal. The poetry or English teacher told the assistant principal, his writing is so violent, I had to take down the poetry site. By the way, he came late that day, walked through an open gate that was supposed to be shut, carrying a shotgun, entered an open door to the building, one that was supposed to be locked. Does some of this sound familiar? 
And of course, security cameras were never monitored. So let's get to the outcome on the next case. And as far as I know, this set the precedent. The only civil lawsuit ever after a school shooting. Districts like Broward have settled out of court. And the next slide, Rebecca, is going to start talking about they actually proportioned blame. They found Brian 27% liable. They actually found the assistant principal 27% liable, all for reasons that I have outlined. There should have been multiple threat assessments here. Every time Brian made a new threat, it's a red flag. We need more intervention. Next slide is going to show us the school psychologist, 19% liable, one-time inadequate threat assessment, insufficient counseling intervention. That school psychologist even signed off to dismiss Brian from special education during a time when he was continuing to exhibit warning signs of violence and complain about being bullied. The next slide gets a little confusing because the administration changed over a two-year period, but they said administrators, 7% liable. And they found his mom, 10% liable. And, you know, we're having this great gun debate in America right now. We need to hold parents accountable. Your kid took your gun to school and shot somebody, the one that you did not responsibly secure from your child, or he took your gun and he died by suicide, you need to be prosecuted. And you're all wondering about the case in Virginia of the six-year-old kid. It's a misdemeanor in Virginia. She could be fined $2,500. That is not enough. I think Brian's mom should have been in jail. And his older brother, 9% liable. He brought the gun into the house, didn't secure it, and it was loaded. This very next slide is going to reinforce, reinforce a couple of points that Rebecca brought up earlier. You know, I was rather naive. Working 26 years full-time in schools, you know what I thought? I do not need a separate liability insurance policy. First of all, I'll never do something stupid. I'll always seek collaboration and supervision, and my district will always stand behind me. The theme in these cases, the district separates themselves from the school counselor, school psychologist, school administrator as quickly as possible. Seek out the training you need on threat assessment, assessing threat to violence towards others, assessing threat to violence towards self. I was honored that Dr. Cornell and I did training for every school district in Florida. They all had to send representatives. Keep records of all your certification. So there may be maybe one last point there. Every school needs a threat assessment team, and you need to be on it. 
I'm going to argue school psychologists are essential members of a school threat assessment team. I'm not hard to get a hold of. Those are some of the things that I've been involved in, as well as the website for the Suicide and Violence Prevention Office where I work. So I'm going to turn it back to Rebecca, Eric, and Rachel. Thank you so much, Dr. Poland. We, we have a couple of really good questions coming through. Uh, so let me see if uh, one of them asks, do you think there's a marked difference in how a rural difference, a rural district responds to a school crisis versus an urban one? And if so, why? Okay, well, I'm going to acknowledge that there's often less community-based mental health resources in rural settings. Uh, I do know that school psychologists might be spread really thin in rural settings. And I'm trying to just go back through each one of these cases. And the majority of my cases, they were not rural school districts. They were actually suburban school districts that had lots of resources. And by the way, I was also involved in a suicide postvention lawsuit as well. I wish I'd have had time to talk about that one. But we've had best practices for suicide postvention in place for a long time. We need to follow those. Nobody ever said do nothing after you suicide. They always said help everybody with their shock, grief, their confusion, yes, even their guilt, and work to prevent further suicides. So, And I don't know if the people who live in suburbs and cities are more litigious, but most of the cases are not from small towns. We had another question um, and then some discussion in the chat about goals. Um, Someone posted, I agree, we should focus on depression and suicide in our IEPs uh, as needed, but uh, don't know how to write measurable IEP goals for that. And then a few folks uh, sort of followed up um, talking about SMART goals and writing goals to focus on how depression is manifested in school. All right, some great questions. And you know, I think if Louisville had had regular documentation that they were doing any kind of assessment of Montana's mood state. Uh, they were discussing with him self-care and strategies to, you know, lift his mood when he was really feeling down, even talking to him about social media sites he might be visiting, getting proper rest, all things that help us cope with, with ups and downs in our life. And I do think that actually present often on self-care. There are things that elementary kids can do about nutrition, exercise, as well as proper rest, doing things that help them feel happy and feel like they're helping other people. So they could have built some of those things in, as well as they could have also been following up with you know, different measures to see if his depression was or was not lifting, as well as focusing on the bullying that he was clearly receiving. 
Um, so I had a, a question when you were talking about um, the crisis training and kind of trauma response training. So I've been in districts where there's a trauma response team, so, uh, like across the district that might go to different schools should something come up. Um, and I've dealt with kind of trauma situations um, and had that, that team like come in and consult with me as kind of the school psychologist within that particular building who knows the staff um, to, you know, work with me to give uh, guidance for how to, how to talk with staff, how to talk with the class and the, and the students and whatnot. Um, but I, I'm trying to think like, have I had specific training on other than like in grad school, because you mentioned, um, you know, school psychologists having like 50 hours of training and in, in kind of trauma response and things like that. Is that model where you have kind of your trauma response team, your experts who have had all that training and coming in and consulting and then um, having school psychologists intervene in that manner? Or would you recommend that like all school psychologists need kind of an intensive um, trauma response background? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And, and sometimes students ask me, you know, where can I get training? Some people are really interested in this and see a big role for themselves, others not so much. But for those that are really interested, obviously, I'm going to recommend NAS Prepare. I'm going to recommend the National Organization of Victims Assistance. Or I'm going to recommend Critical Incident Stress Management, Jeffrey Mitchell's model. But at the district level, I think every school psychologist should get a half a day or a day about this because the team's going to come in, of course. They're going to be there most of the time one day, two days at the most. Then they go back to their other assigned duties, and that's leaving the typical school psychologist. And if you were to ask me, what are we the weakest on? It's basically preventing a tragedy in the first place. We're pretty good at the immediate intervention in the hours and first day or two. And then we're really poor at what are we doing one month, six months? What about the anniversary? But that's what the regular assigned school counselor, school psychologist. I took one of those calls a week ago. The first anniversary of the suicide is coming up. She stepped in front of a train in a suburb of Chicago. Well, let's talk about reaching out siblings, friends. This will very much be on their mind. So I believe it needs to be a part of every training program and at least a few hour refresher every year or two for every practicing school psychologist. Are there some of those um, crisis uh, prevention programs that have good data on their, on their universal screening, like school climate screening um, and mental health screen, universal mental health screening? Is, do, you, do you find that those practices are recommended regularly? Absolutely, I do. But they are a tough sell to school administrators. Yeah. Sadly, it's often like, we don't really want to know. If we know, then we'll, I've had administrators say, if we do that survey, if we got a problem, then we'd have to do something about it. I'm in a state right now that has said, we will no longer participate in the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance Survey. 
I'm going to say that's the most incredibly important data we have about high school students at risk. And my state's no longer going to participate. But then I also find even school psychologists, when I go, are you familiar with the YRBS? They go, what are you talking about? CDC released that data a week ago tomorrow. Every school psychologist working with high school kids in America should be looking at that data and talking with their high school principal. It's so important. And I think also there are parent communities that are very weary of collecting that kind of data too. So I think it requires collaboration, home to school, you know, and conversations and um, just more understanding about why we would collect that information and what can, what can we do with it once we've collected it? So just last week, I did webinars for school personnel in Ohio. I did one in Pennsylvania. I asked them all, did you read the Surgeon General's report on protecting the mental health of our youth? None of them saw it. Okay. And basically that report said, we have a crisis. Social media is wrecking havoc with our children's lives. It made recommendations for caregivers, schools, communities, and students themselves. And how? as school mental health professionals, are people missing that report? So it talked about suicide prevention. It talked about depression. It talked about access to lethal means. It talked about adults modeling, coping, optimism, and adults taking charge of technology. How are we missing what the Surgeon General has tried to call to all of our attention. Such an important topic. And I know that you, this training is typically, what, I think three hours long, and we have asked you to fit so much information into an hour, and we appreciate your time so much. And um, thank you for, for staking with us um, through that. Um, I want to remind our viewers that our next podcast is on 3.5, and we're talking about ADHD. So um, that would be great to, to join anybody that can. Um, Erica, Rebecca, any last-minute thoughts or comments? Um, but I want to say for sure thank you to our guests. This was amazing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thank you. This was fantastic. And great engagement with our listeners. Um, fantastic ideas, thoughts, and comments from, uh, you know, from our colleagues who are listening in. Um, I, I did want to say a thank you to the advocacy uh, through NASP this past week. Uh, those who have heard, this is sort of off topic, um, but those who had heard about the incident, the racial uh, racist behavior from the Hyatt toward uh, Dr. Celeste Malone and colleagues, and um, thank everyone for their advocacy and work because um, it led to uh, favorable outcomes with a public apology and some um, training and support. And, um, and it's a step in the right direction. You know, these kinds of things, so many people don't have this kind of advocacy and so many things go on, uh, without this kind of support. And so we need to keep working in that direction and, and supporting, checking our biases and, uh, working toward anti-racism. So Absolutely. I just wanted to put that out there as well.
Yes, thank you, Eric. Such an important point and um, an example of out of really difficult and painful things together, we can do so much more. So I hope you all watching, whether tonight live, you were able to join us or over time, continue the conversation because truly um, we all need to, you know, up our game in this area on this topic of tonight's podcast. And we can do that so much better if we can, you know, lean on each other, what's going well in your school and your setting and um, what kinds of trainings are out there and how can we improve? Cause it's so important and so um, crucial, especially right now. So thank you everybody. And thanks Dr. Poland. This was a great okay. episode and we really appreciate your time and generosity. You're welcome.